So great to be with you all. I appreciate everyone venturing through that sit together. Death contemplation can take a variety of forms. I find that particular guided meditation to be one of the most potent I've, I've ever done myself. This first talk is aimed to be about death and rebirth. There were a lot of unpopular Buddhist topics to fit into the morning, so we're doubling up. And I'll begin with a share screen so people can see the handout. Once again, I don't usually do handouts, so forgive me if there's any awkwardness in how I move through this. So to first contextualize the morning, um, as someone who grew up in Western Dharma circles and then went to Thailand, I found there were certain teachings that the Thai forest masters emphasized again and again that you just don't see come up in uh, most or many actually um, Dhamma circles in the U.S. And when I returned to the U.S. as a monk, I expected that people would be very uninterested in these things or I was very cautious about them. But I found there's actually a lot of interest right now. And uh, Ajahn Chah, when he was speaking to a uh, leader of a Dhamma teaching center in the U.S., said, if you want to teach the Dhamma here, you need to, I think his word was stab them in the heart with Dhamma, which is a high order. But what I think it can mean in certain contexts is to really trust that there's a place for these deep teachings, even though they are in many cases out of keeping with our usual uh, approach to spiritual practice or the tone that much of what Dhamma is in the U.S. currently has taken. And the topics that I feel are perhaps most worth touching on in a morning are death contemplation, which is taught actually somewhat quite frequently in the U.S., but merging that with rebirth. Um, and then the Buddhist cosmology. Many people come to Buddhism believing they've encountered a completely sterile philosophical system devoid of any of the religious trappings that they were maybe fleeing from, uh, including a cosmology they couldn't completely align with. And little did they know, we Buddhists have a wilder cosmology than just about anyone. It is different than some of the Abrahamic religions approach in that there's no binary of belief involved. Sada or confidence, faith in Buddhism is not a binary of uh, complete acceptance of a large doctrine. Rather, it's the confidence enough to move forward with a practice, uh, to believe in the efficacy of, uh, of practice of cultivating wholesome states and relinquishing unwholesome states insofar as a scientist, say, would to test a hypothesis. And that's the modicum of faith necessary for practice. And that gets you on the path. And because there's such a clear delineation of practical means towards purifying the mind, uh, that's all that's required at the beginning. Um, but as practice grows and as our faith and confidence in these teachings grow, there is an emotional element that rings true with the word faith, even though sada, the Pali word that is often translated as faith, does not actually map onto that word in an English context completely. 
And that uh, allows us to not say that one has to believe in any of these things, rebirth or the cosmology, to practice well. But it is also important to let the Buddha have his teachings. And these were things he talked about and said were part of the handful of leaves. They were important. They were part of the path to the ending of suffering. And I found that there is a time in people's practice where it can become relevant. So it's important to speak to. The third subject is body contemplation. And that's something that's very rarely spoken about in the West, but is very very significant in the Thai force tradition and in the suttas in a way that's not been, I think, given proper prominence in Buddhism's transmission to the West. So to begin with, the Buddhist description of right view, many of you will know the Buddha gave a description of transcendent right view, which is the Four Noble Truths. That is uh, stress, the origination of stress, dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, which is nibbana or uh, yeah, cessation of stress, and the path leading to the cessation. And importantly, each of those, as many of you know, comes with a task. So one is encouraged to comprehend dukkha, which allows one to let go of its source, tanha, craving which allows one to realize cessation, nibbana, peace. And this allows the cultivation of the path, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. But what's less commonly brought forth is the what the Buddha termed mundane right view. And this is described uh, in, in this case, in terms of its opposite wrong right view in Majjhima Nikaya 117, the Great Forty Sutta, and there's some decent evidence that parts of the sutta were added uh, later or are less reliable, um, the distinction between the transcendent and non-transcendent elements. But this uh, description of right view is common in the suttas. So the description of wrong view, there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. There is no fruit or result of good or bad actions. There is no this world, no next world, no mother, no father no spontaneously reborn beings, no Brahmins or contemplatives who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next after having directly known and realized it for themselves. This is wrong view. So invert all that, and that's right view. And what you might notice is a lot of it has to do with our karmic obligations in this world to uh, those we to our mother and father, for example, holding that relationship as sacred. Um, and uh, also the efficacy of kama, uh, the results of kama, and to the existence of spontaneously reborn beings, which in this case is a reference to other realms, to the realms of the devas or angels, to the brahmas, to the hell beings, etc., the hungry ghosts, uh, and also to the existence of awakening, and to rebirth. So that's all in mundane right view. And it's fascinating to have these two next to each other because it's like depth perception. You have one eye seeing just the Four Noble Truths. It's something so simple, so exacting. And then on the other hand, you have one eye seeing conventional reality and our karmic obligations and these ripples of good and bad action into not just this life, but the next. And this is uh, how we have to operate, is having one foot in the transcendent of the Four Noble Truths and one foot directly in the realm of the conventional and taking utmost care with it. So death contemplation is um, something many of you will know. Um, and I'm not going to read all the passages. I've put them here for you to look at as well. Um, but it's worth noting that the one place in the suttas, the Buddha really speaks directly to present moment awareness or, or to being exactly in the present moment is in the context of death contemplation. And many of you will know the sutta where he 
asks the monks, bhikkhus, how often or how do you practice death contemplation? And one bhikkhu says, let me see if I've had this sutta here. No, I think because it's so common um, or well-known. One bhikkhu says, uh, I think how lucky I am that I have even this seven days or so to practice the Dhamma that I may die after, you know, that I have this long. And the Buddha says, you were heedless. And the next monk says, how lucky I am that I have this day to practice the Dhamma, uh, not knowing when death will come. And the Buddha says, you are heedless, and so on and so forth, until finally, uh, one monk says, I think how lucky I am that I have the length of this breath, in-breath or out-breath, to practice the Dhamma. And the Buddha says, you are heedful. And another says, how lucky I am to have the length of it takes to swallow a mouthful of food that long to practice the Dhamma. And the Buddha says, you are heedful. So the immediacy of that present moment awareness, thinking you don't know when you will die. Uh, heart attacks happen. Um, people die walking on the street, getting hit by cars, a stroke. Um, and to really think this is all we have right now. Our ability to ignore death is uh, profound, deeply embedded, and it's it's fairly well known in our culture, which is why death contemplation is not actually that terribly rare of a practice. But where in the guided meditation, we looked to death as a means to encourage relinquishment, poly patinisago, letting go, how it's usually used in these contexts is to encourage heedfulness or apamada. So my teacher, Ajahn Anand, uh, used this as his main contemplation or meditation for many years. And this is a quote from him. When newly ordained mindfulness of breathing and the contemplation of death were my main methods of meditation, this was because I still used to think and fantasize a lot about the future. When young and youthful, we tend to think only in terms of gain and progress, never of decline and loss. For this reason, I took up the theme of death for contemplation, seeing the danger in the endless round of birth and demise, where the fortunes of life are unpredictable, and where the only certainty is that of passing away. Through such reflections, the heart is moved by a sense of profound sadness towards the universality of suffering, and by a deep urgency to transcend it, like the desire to flee from a burning house. So, the way that this is used as a meditation object is often to bring to mind one word, such as maranang, maranang, which means death, death, or I will die, I will die, or this is all you have. The mantra or parikama in Thai, which my teacher Ajahn Anand used, was life is uncertain, death is certain. Life is uncertain, death is certain. You only have this moment. You only have this moment. Whatever it takes to bring that sense of this is it right now, this is it, uh, that's an appropriate mantra to use to bring death contemplation to the fore. And apamada, mad, uh, means the root of this word is uh, sort of drunkness. Um, so apamada is, it can, it's translated often as heedfulness, but it also means sobriety. But what you'll notice with one of these parikamas, one of these mantras, this way of recollecting death is it uses thought to hamstring thought. So if you find your mind wandering with death, con with uh, the breath or into the future and the past, just to bring to mind, this is it, that life is uncertain, death is certain, and watches that sheer knife of a mantra cuts off everything, uh, the proliferations of the mind. And um, this is what the Buddha was referencing with that sutta where he says, think how grateful you are just to have the length is one inhale and exhale. That's how long you should be in thinking into the future, basically, when you're in this mode. And I find keeping up death contemplation all the time can be quite hard, but it's very useful when you just can't stop uh, thinking. 
and bringing it to bear in such cases. The other sutta, which is very relevant, is one many of you will know, um, where the Buddha references a blind turtle. Um, do we have a volunteer who would like to read this? I love this sutta. It's very famous. Um, raise your electronic hand if you're brave and want to read about a blind turtle. Charles, go for it. Cumulus to where it starts. Oh, here we go. Monks. That is, is that it? Yep. Monks. Suppose that this great earth were totally covered with water, and a man were to toss a yoke with a single hole there. A wind from the east would push it west. A wind from the west would push it east. A wind from the north would push it south. A wind from the south would push it north. And suppose a blind sea turtle were there. It would come to the surface once every 100 years. Now, what do you think? Would that blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every 100 years stick his neck into the yoke with a single hole? It would be a sheer coincidence, Lord, that the blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every 100 years would stick his neck into the yoke with a single hole. It is likewise a sheer coincidence that one obtains the human state. It is likewise a sheer coincidence that a Tathagata, worthy and rightly self-awakened, arises in the world. It's likewise a sheer coincidence that a Dhamma in Vinaya, expounded by a Tathagata, appears in the world. Now, this human state has been obtained. A Tathagata, worthy and rightly self-awakened, has arisen in the world. A Dhamma and Vinaya expounded by a Tathagata appears in the world. Thank you, Charles. So I love that sutta, and many of you will know it. Um, so our obtaining of a human state, the Buddha likens to this blind, sir, blind sea turtle just happening to come up, and how rare that is. And this is interesting because where death contemplation as I just described it, and as the Buddha describes it, brings about heedfulness through just a conception of this life, just how long I have right now to practice the Dhamma. That recollection of the, and you'll notice there's an intertwining, a beautiful intertwining in that sutta um, of gratitude and heedfulness. The Buddha says, how grateful I am to have this long to practice the Dhamma, how grateful. That's worth noting. And, you know, a good recollection of death really helps winnow the chaff of our lives from the grain. You, when you recollect death regularly, it makes it very clear, you know, that the grudge you're holding on to is not worth holding on to, that you need to tie up the loop, ask forgiveness with those you have an outstanding debt to karmically. Um, it's very hard to remain angry at your husband or wife for leaving the dishes unwashed when you realize both of you might be dead in about 60 seconds. And that's beautiful. It just brings a poignancy to life if it's held correctly. Um, but that sense of heedfulness and gratitude is expanded through the vision of rebirth. And this is something, um, just to go into it now, where you know, it's very, it's quite uncommon to believe in rebirth in uh, a modern dry materialist worldview in this day and age. And that's fine. You can still practice well, but uh, it's important to realize it is there in the suttas. The Buddha did teach it. It's not later interpolation. If you've read the suttas, it's, it's everywhere through it. And I think with this and the Buddhist cosmology, it's worth just taking a moment and considering um, looking at the Buddhist teachings like a map is you kind of look at a map and imagine this map. It says there's trees and there's, you look out there and there's trees. You say, you look on the map and it says there's a river and there's a river. And over the years, you see this map correct again and again. And similarly with the Buddhist teachings, many of us who have practiced, you see 
his precision and insight again and again. And after a while, you just gain a real wholesome sense of informed confidence about this map maker. And then imagine on the edge of that map, you see a range of mountains and you've never seen mountains before. And you're like, I don't know if I believe in mountains. But at the same time, the map maker has been right so many times. So maybe at that point, there's an informed openness to maybe there are mountains. And I find this is an important part of practice is um, many people will come and be and, and say very much like, oh, I'm sort of agnostic about the rebirth thing, etc. And that's fine. We don't want to, you know, you, you can meditate well. But there does come a point where it becomes a really important question because uh, it is significant what happens when we die. And I think there comes a point where as practitioners, we owe it to the Buddha to at least look a bit deeper into the subject um, and be open to it. I remember I had a dry materialist worldview until I was about 19. And then I was like, you know, so many of my friends and family have had crazy experiences that I can't explain. And every time it happened, I'd sort of brush it off as like, well, it's something else. Like, who knows? For example, my mom and dad were skiing uh, up at Schweitzer and one of their friends was sick and they were sitting in a tree well. And suddenly my mom just said, oh, she's dead. And she died right then. And, and that's so common, events like that. And most of us have had something like that. And usually if we kind of have a really instantiated worldview, we just you just kind of put it aside or you hear some study and you're like uh, fake science. But I said, well, you know, why don't I at least open to this? And it was very interesting because when I did, people started talking to me about their experiences and it, and it was hard to ignore. Um, and if one is interested in looking a bit more um, at those, I, I've listed some uh, resources here, perhaps the most significant one being the interviews with the, um, uh, University of Virginia faculty who were involved in a study of uh, over a thousand past life ch uh, children remembering past lives, documenting their uh, memories and then going and confirming those stories with others um, independently. And it's an exhaustive study. Dr. Even Stevenson was the one who sort of pioneered it. And uh, many books have been written about these cases, including a good one called Life Before Life. So just to say, um, I think there comes a point where it's worth kind of investigating a little more, because as you see with this uh, turtle analogy, um, the sense of heedfulness that can come from a worldview that includes rebirth is pretty profound. And it's also worth noting that on the night of the Buddha's awakening, he has three knowledges. One is of his own past lives. So he sees, and these are the phrases, uh, thus was my food, thus was my class or clan. Um, I think this was my name. This was my food, thus was my class, thus was my name. This was my food, thus was my class, thus was my name. Back and back and back. And then he sees the karma and rebirths of countless beings. And that vision leads to such dispassion that it helps issue into the third vision, which is of awakening. So he, in that, those triple knowledges, what they're called the tevija, there's a very explicit link between this vision of reality and relinquishment of our attachment. So it is significant in that way. So once again, not to trigger anyone, it's okay just to hold these things as you will, but also, um, it's probably worth reading a book about if you haven't just why not, you know, give it a little bit of investigation if you feel inclined. Okay. So this is another sutta, um, which I think is worth mentioning about death contemplation. Uh, where is it? And Gutra Nikai 8.29. And it's the Buddha speaking about, there are these eight inopportune moments that are not right occasions for living the spiritual life. What eight? Here a Tathagata has arisen in the world, an Arahant perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be trained. 
etc. But a person has been reborn in hell. This is the first inopportune moment that is not right. The same, but a person has been reborn in the animal realm. A person has been reborn in the sphere of afflicted spirits, the pretas, the hungry ghosts. A person has been reborn in a certain long-lived deva, so the angels. But a person has been reborn in an outlying province among the uncouth foreigners, a place to which bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, male lay followers, and female lay followers do not travel. This is the fifth inopportune moment. A person has been reborn in the central provinces, but he holds wrong view and has a distorted perspective. And there he quotes that wrong view again. This is the sixth inopportune moment. But a person has been reborn in the central provinces, but he is unwise, stupid, obtuse, unable to understand the meaning. This is the seventh un, uh, inopportune moment. And then, but a person has been reborn in the central provinces. He is wise, intelligent, astute, able to understand the meaning of what has been well stated and badly stated. This is the eighth inopportune moment that is not right because in this one, a Tathagata has not arisen in the world. So all the conditions are right personally, but there's no teaching. These are the eight inopportune moments. And then the one inopportune moment is all the conditions coming together where a Tathagata arises, we're reborn a human in a place where we have access to the teaching and we're interested. And just holding that precious uh, moment of gratitude to recollect how rare that is in the scope of samsara, in that wider view. Even in the view of one life, it's such a, a blessing to come into contact with these teachings. But when the vision expands to encompass an endless round of rebirth, you can understand how this sense of urgency, of sobriety, of apamata becomes deeply, um, deeply meaningful and felt how lucky we are to have this. So I think that's just such a beautiful sutta. So the next use of death contemplation, we're coming to the end of this, is, or of rebirth, is an equalizing force creating compassion. And this is a beautiful use of it. So many of the Buddha's teachings are so potent. The Buddha compares them to a snake, that if we pick them up wrong, they bite us. And Similarly, uh, but, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine and in modern medicine, venom is also used as an anti-venom. So these teachings can be profoundly healing or they can be held in a harmful way. And similarly, especially as kind of self-flagellating Westerners with so much self-criticism, um, these teachings on heedfulness, uh, invoking a certain fear, can really lead the heart to contract and become very tight, which is not a correct movement. There's moments of remembering this sense of valuing the moment, uh, the sobriety, apamata. But so many of these teachings we can hold in another way to invoke a different emotion. And similarly with rebirth, the Buddha speaks about ways you can use it to invoke equanimity and compassion. And many of you will know the teaching in the Tibetan uh, schools, in the Mahayana, looking at all beings and understanding they've all been your mothers, your relatives, and just the compassion that elicits. The Buddha says the same. There's a sutta where a Brahmin is asking about spreading loving kindness to those who have passed. And the Buddha, uh, and the Buddha says you should spread it to your deceased relatives in the Preta realm. And the Brahmin says, what if I have no deceased relatives in the preta realm and the buddha says it is impossible you of course you have relatives that have passed in the preta realm because endless is this round of samsara we've been related uh to everyone and how that can open the heart finally i love this particular sutta from an inconstruable beginning comes transmigration a beginning point is not evident, though beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. When you see someone who is happy and well provided in life, you should conclude, we too have experienced just this sort of thing in the course of that long, long time. When you see someone who has fallen on hard times, overwhelmed with hard times, you should conclude, we too have experienced just this sort of thing in the course of that long, long time. Why is that? 
From an inconstruable beginning comes transmigration. A beginning point is not evident. Though beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. Long have you thus experienced stress, experienced pain, experienced loss, swelling the cemeteries. Enough to become disenchanted with all fabricated things. Enough to become dispassionate. Enough to be released. Swelling the cemeteries. That's just the best phrase. So once again, this all can come across heavy. And, um, but I find there's just such compassion in being like, I too have been there. I've been that person on the side of the street, or I've been that person. If jealousy comes up being like, I've been, I've been there. Um, and this is a beautiful perspective that can be brought, uh, by, by rebirth. But if it's, a lot to take on than just remembering that um, looking at rebirth uh, in every moment of every day is a valid way to work with this teaching. How many times have you been born today? How many roles have you taken? How have you been someone's mother, someone's uh, the daughter, the sister, the enemy, the friend, the giver, the victim, and just watching that birth and death again and again in the course of a day is potent and meaningful. And it's often talked about that way. And yeah, holding, holding these uh, teachings in an open, open way and understanding that the Buddha faced these questions in his own time in the Kalama Sutta, the, he speaks to a village of practitioners who are confused about what to believe. And he says, look, what is wholesome and unwholesome? If one acts out of greed, hatred, and delusion, do you think it leads to their welfare and benefit or to their harm? And they say it leads to their harm. And then he goes on to say, are these things praised by the wise or censured by the wise? And then he tells them to develop loving kindness. So in that, he says, you know, look at what's wholesome and unwholesome for you. But then what's not quoted there often is, also look to what's praised by the wise. What do the wise people in your life say? What do what does the Buddha say? What do these other teachers? And that's relevant because our view can be very skewed. And um, at the end of that, he says, look, it's a double bet, uh, is what he calls it, the double bet. He says, if there's no rebirth, then behave well, practice, and you'll live a blameless life praised by the wise. If there is rebirth, then you'll go to a good destination. So there's no downside. It's the double bet. Um, but I think as Ajahn Sona said, we're all kind of in a plane crash trying to get out and we've got to choose one of those. So uh, best to act as beautifully as we can in the moment, which I'm sure many of you are doing because you're already here. Um, and that's where I'll end the talk. I hope it was uh, palatable to most Okay, so that's a lot. Um, sorry if it was a lot, but if people have any questions or things they'd like to talk about, we have about 20 minutes to do so. And if people need to get up and you know move around a little, that's fine too, but we'll have a break in about 15 or 20 minutes too. Uh, feel free to raise your electronic hand. Asa, Chitto, good to see you. Uh, I think you're muted, Hasa. I, maybe I can unmute you. Okay. I'm sorry. I just... There we go. <laughs> okay. So my question is about the sutta with the turtle. Hmm. Um, I was a bit confused by the phrase sheer coincidence. Um, the Buddha's arising in the world and rebirth in the world as a human being sheer coincidence because of the teachings on Kama, I have a hard time using that terminology because the way I've thought about it before is thinking, oh, um, you know, my past actions have blessed me with the opportunity to be born with, around this teaching. Can you, can you give some clarification for how I can understand that phrase or maybe if it's a translation thing? That's a good question. Um, I'm going to look into that in the break for the exact poly if I can. Um, but my sense is the point still stands. Uh, 
the in the sense of the our karmic field is so vast that it's true every experience we have or you know the our experience emerges from past karma and merged or combined with present karma but um which of those you know samsara is without discernible beginning the buddha says so our field of karma is planted with an undiscernible amount of seeds so what comes to fruition in any given moment is you know it is predicated on the current mind state um and we want to put in good conditions but uh i think what he's pointing to there is is the uh emotional tone of what you get from that phrase uh we can affect our future action but it's also so unlikely that we have arisen now in the scope of things and bringing to mind that heedfulness but you're right in its strictest sense coincidence would not apply to the buddha's teaching uh, at least in that sense completely but i'll look into the poly i'm curious about that too thank you hasa yes the turtle can swim around and aim for well he's blind so he does his best i guess andrew hi um thank you for the teachings and i'm not sure how important it is to contemplate this but it still seems interesting to me so like humans haven't been around terribly long in the history of the earth nor has life and you know the earth's been around for a fraction of the existence of the universe as we understand it so my question is like in your understanding as we contemplate um you know the endless cycles of death and rebirth like does that go back essentially like infinity far back infinity like beyond far back. life yeah. that's not that's not the phrase in the suttas but i think it applies um yeah the uh it's a great question this is a point to really take stock of how far ahead of his time the buddhist teachings were uh we you know you look at medieval conceptions of the cosmos and it's you know a dome over a finite dome where the stars are embedded the buddha spoke about a model of the cosmos which maps very well onto ours infinite world systems and infinite cycles of world system contraction and expansion big bangs and big crunches and i know currently there's a bit of debate about exactly how uh you know the the big bang or whatever began and ended especially after the james webb uh has made a bit more problematic those conceptions but the idea is um yeah that we're ch- chittas uh have been reborn and ours in various states through an infinite cycle of big bangs and big crunches and when there's not an earth or not a human rebirth there's many other world systems where those things happen uh at least other galaxies and perhaps other universes and if there's not a suitable place to be born then um the idea is that they're not reborn i mean time is a very uh relative thing so uh my sense is that yeah it is mysterious but i i would say it's you know considering how mysterious quantum is as well it it's uh within the wane but i think Yes, the Buddha spoke directly about kind of big bangs and big crunches and that's the general idea. Did that help at all or answer a bit of the question? I'm going to assume yes. Um quickly I'm going to take a question from the chat. Could you explain the difference between the foreign provinces and the central provinces? I've always just taken it to mean that there are certain areas where these teachings aren't extant uh or accessible and in the what they called the rose apple country um jambudipa india in the buddhist time the buddha's teachings were only in that heartland so if you were born anywhere else there was no way of of accessing them so i've taken it as that you could map that onto uh the modern world as you wish but now that we have the internet i'd say there's not many outlying provinces with no access to these teachings so perhaps it's not as relevant at the term deb deb broke to see you 
Thank you for this wonderful talk, Anton. Um, I made the decision to be open-minded to the possibility of rebirth. I don't know if I believe it or not, but because I had an insight that thinking that this is only this one life, that stirs up a lot of tanha. Like, oh, I want to be able to go on that African safari that my friend just went on that I'll never be able to afford. Or, oh, I've got to, you know, get a publication or something like that. And by taking that pressure off myself, by thinking, well, there, there might be more lives, then I can be more satisfied with what there is right now um, and just be able to be more focused on practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. So for me, it's taken pressure off the material um, tanha and more focus with, with the chanda. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. As I really agree. And it's like I was saying, like these teachings, you can hold them in very different ways. There was a year where the idea of rebirth and how rare, like I was sleeping in uh, outside in, in the jungle uh, with for that year and uh, just in a little tent and I would wake up with ants all around me and very often. And just that idea of like how easy it would be to be reborn as an ant, like how rare how many more beings are there below us than there are humans? You know, it was terrifying. And for a year, there was a lot of, um, it was, it's frightening. I mean, the lower realms are frightening. I didn't find it was an important moment to have in my practice for the sake of heedfulness, but it wasn't sustainable and it wasn't healthy for me to rest in all the time. There's moments where it's really good to recollect oh, this action, this lie, this deceit will carry, even if it doesn't manifest now. It makes you so careful of your comma. Um, and many people who don't believe in rebirth are careful anyways. But, but I find that it can also be held in a way that is kind of softening at times. Like we've been traveling with these same karmic ties for a long time. Um, there are good beings who are supporting us. Um, it's not we don't have to get it all right this life. If we don't attain our hauntship, it's not the end of the world. We're, we're doing our best. So that's honestly where my heart rests with these teachings more now. And yeah, I think bringing it to mind in a way that feels healthy, um, a good metric for practice for, for Westerners, I think is uh, warmth, normalcy and flourishing. Um, and many of the Buddha's teachings uh, can come across very, very intense and uh, just holding that with a, a skillful grip. Thank you, Deborah. Audrey, please. Hello. I was wondering during the death contemplation meditation, while you were talking about lightness and brightness, I often felt a sense of heaviness and darkness that I would <laughs> describe as more swaddling or just a a heaviness that made it unnecessary to move that promoted stillness and felt very peaceful and swaddled. Mm -hmm. Would you have anything to say about how I should interpret or proceed with that? That sounds great. If it's uh no, I mean, if it's calming, um, the Buddha said the taste of the Dhamma, the Dhamma has one taste just as the taste, the ocean has one taste. Um, and the taste of the Dhamma is, is freedom, li liberation. So I found for many people, there is a sense of brightness that manifests when they really think of this letting go, the heaviness falls away. But for others, it's not peaceful at all. It can be a very painful meditation, actually, and lonely. And then you're, I haven't done this enough and gotten enough feedback, but your uh, experience is, is completely valid. And if it involved a sense of, of letting go, um, then uh, in the sense of letting go of these thoughts into a simplicity of unification of mind, that, that kind of calm, then it might be something worth exploring. Um, one thing to note is sometimes when calm is coming up, it, it can feel a lot like a, like a heaviness or a block at first. Um, you know, for example, uh, to give a rough analogy, there was a period in my, my monastic life where I would, feel really sad in the afternoons until I realized I wasn't sad. I just really wanted to meditate. And as soon as I closed my eyes, the mind was like, uh, you know, was able to calm more. 
So yeah, following that heaviness uh, or um, that sense and watching it, um, seeing where it leads. And often uh, as calm manifests, it'll lead to a lot of those strange sensations like the hands might feel really big, your body might feel gigantic, you might feel like you're floating, um, you might not be able to tell which way your hands are. Like these strange sensations are a good sign. It means the grip of perception is loosening. And so follow that and um, yeah, see where it kind of takes you uh, and center kind of on your object. Did that help at all? Yes, thank you, Ajahn. Great. Quickly, a question from the chat from Liz. What is it that is reborn? Ah, this is a good question. So one question people do have is, if there's no self, what is it that carries kama from life to life? And Ajahn Tanisro gives the best answer to this I've ever heard, which is that that's thinking about karma in the context of self. Like you have a self that's kind of carrying karma life to life where the Buddha taught self in the context of karma. He taught it the opposite way. So what we have is a stream of karma, which is sort of patterns of action and habit and craving. And one of those habit patterns is the creation of a sense of self. So I think the best analogy is a stream where you look at a stream and you can say that's the, the Ganges. And it has certain curves and certain eddies, certain patterns, but the water flowing through, it's always different. And over time, the eddies change and the patterns change. But one of those eddies is a sense of self. And it's useful also because that lets you realize that the sense of self is different. Uh, like you'll notice your internal voice tone even changes. Like you have the self that berates yourself. You have the angry self, you have the self-righteous self, you have the generous self. And just noticing how many eddies there are that we all just call me, mine, this is myself. So that's the karmic stream. As to what substrate that is, um, I think the idea is that there's just another substrate to reality than, than materiality. And, you know, considering how the deeper we go into what this is, the more it just turns into energy. I, I think it's, we have to acknowledge we don't really know what's going on anyways. Um, so I think that's the idea. Um, you know, and also to say that we look at the world through a lens formed by uh, whose edge is a circle of experts all independently verifying a phenomena um, independently of each other with special tools. That's the scientific method. And the issue with these visions or knowledges of rebirth or of the, all these things is that we've lost the technology. The techno like many of us have never seen an atom. We just trust people with microscopes to independently verify what a boron atom looks like or a molecule, like what its valence is. And similarly, um, we don't have the microscope anymore because we don't have a culture that systematically cultivated the unified, powerful mind, which is samadhi. But over history and across the scope of those cultures that do have institutions where that technology is very robust, um, like the Sangha, uh, you do see independently a lot of teachers verifying the same phenomena. And so I think a similar criteria can be applied. It's just we've kind of smashed all our microscopes over here in the West and that's a problem. So we just think it's all happenstance. Alex. Hello. Thank you for your talk. I, I feel a little bit embarrassed for not understanding this, but uh, I see the eighth uh, inopportune moment and the only opportune moment. And I feel somehow to see the difference between them. It's exactly the same thing, except one says, but the person has been reborn in central province. And another says, and the person has been reborn. But the arrest is the same. What am I missing? Great question. It's that the Tathagata has not arisen. It it switches. Oh. Yeah, it, it's, it's hidden there. No, it's so everything, it's, it's the other part. I, everything else is right. Like you've been I'm reborn in the right spot. Looking at the wrong point. I see. Yes. Uh, I skipped kind of the thing. I see. 
But don't worry, Alex. The uh, rising of the Thagata is important part. Yes. I see. Gotcha. Don't worry, right. Alex. You're, you're in number you. nine. You're in number nine, though. So all's well. <laughs> um, we do have to wrap up for a break in a second, but let's take one more question, and then we'll have another Q&A towards the end. Uh, Jessica. Thank you, Ajahn. It was a wonderful talk. I was one of those people during the uh, contemplation, during the meditation, that felt a lot of emotion. And it's interesting because I have done death contemplation, but not in this same approach. And what was helpful, though, in your kind of breakdown of it afterwards was this concept that we've lived all of our lives, we've lived many of these over and over and over again. And I realized that what brought up the emotion is, I'm going, if all works, I will be a grandmother for the first time in April or March. And the sadness was that role, not fulfilling that role. And then when you described that, I was like, wait a minute, I've done that role. I can be confident I've lived all these roles. And it's been an amazing shift. And I'm so grateful for that insight because that's now a, I can let that go. And that's a huge shift. So thank you very much. I just, it's in line, I think, with what uh, someone else was saying about just that ability to let go when you see that it's been there before. So thank you. Um, I'm really glad, Jessica. And um, there's a fascinating myth in the Hindu tradition. It's a story where uh, Indra's getting, or Saka, sorry, the king of the gods, uh, is getting a bit uppity and building a bunch of mansions. And his architect's exhausted and goes up to Brahma complaining. And Brahma descends into Indra's pal- palace as a 12-year-old Brahmin boy. And he begins to speak to Indra. And, he, and as he's speaking, this parade of ants comes by, like thousands deep, just wandering through the hall and out again. And he says, each one of these was an Indra before you before their karma ran out. And um, that's a terrifying vision, uh, but it, it does speak to this, um, the scope. And I do find there's comfort there if you hold it right um, as well, in a, in a way that feels wholesome. Like we have been through this before and it's enough for dispassion. And that doesn't mean an empty coldness. It, it means a, a kind of wider love. And yeah, I, I, I agree. Okay, so we'll take a break. Um, Let's meet back in about 10 minutes at 10.33 and we'll go from there. People are welcome to use the restroom or whatever you'd like.